Hello and welcome to the Veteran Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones, and this is episode 47. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about my dog, Lewis's sore mouth, and what natural treatments and remedies that you can use for pain control. I'm going to be discussing the truth about parvovirus and answer this question. What do you need to know about seizures, and can you even use cannabis? Now Veteran Secrets is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. I definitely appreciate it. If you'd subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. Any questions or comments, feel free to post a comment on my blog at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash blog, or you can send me an email, and that's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. You get a copy of my book and three free videos at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash news. Now let's get right into today's podcast. Lewis, for those of you who don't know, is my faithful black lab featured in many a story and video. As he is older, I tend to worry a little bit more about him. If he seems off, no question, I'll go ahead and give him a brief exam. So just last Monday, he was outside chewing on some bones a neighbor brought over. They were a little bit smaller than I would prefer. Um, her dog is a lot smaller than Lewis. So what ended up happening is Lewis got that bone out quite happily chewing away. And, you know, he's wagging his tail. I mean, I'm like, oh, I've got to give it to him. Although thinking I probably shouldn't. Um, and he does regularly chew on bones, but generally they're a lot bigger femur bones. The ones are much wider than his whole mouth. He can't get his whole mouth into them. And he just chews and gnaws and chews and gnaws. And they've worked really well for help keeping his teeth clean. Um, but typically, I'm really uncomfortable giving him bones that are too small where he can get into his mouth and also sort of break off little bits. Anyway, there's something to be said about do as I say, not as I do. So yes, I went ahead and gave him the bone. Next thing you know, he comes in and he's a little bit reluctant to chew. Hmm, warning bells go, go off. And I think, what could this be? So I go ahead, I do a brief exam. And then, sure enough, he just yelps when I try to palpate and open the left side of his mouth. Which initially, it has me thinking, tooth pain, you know, why in the first place did I go ahead and give him these small? So I then proceeded to go ahead and give him some valerian along with 650 milligrams of ASP. That's ASA. About an hour later, I was able to give him a much better exam. I was able to partly open that side of his mouth. And from what I could see, it looked like he'd actually fractured his upper fourth premolar. It's also called the carnasial tooth. Um, here are some things that you should know. First of all, what are the symptoms? of a fractured tooth. So the most commonly fractured tooth in dogs is the canine tooth, followed by the upper fourth premolar, that carnasial tooth. The upper fourth premolar is the largest tooth in the back top of your dog's mouth. Symptoms that may appear include pain, drooling, reluctant to chew on one side, only wanting softer food. You might see a swollen jaw. Sometimes an obvious fracture in the tooth can be seen, or an abscess on the gums, where it swells just above the gum line above that tooth. Infection caused by fractured teeth can lead to lethargy, the inability to eat, just overall feeling of malaise, irritability. Your dog is sick and unwell. So what is the treatment? Obviously, the biggest treatment is that tooth needs to get removed as soon as possible, meaning you need to get your dog examined to the veterinarian. But in the interim, you want to be offering some type of pain control. Now, say this happens on a Sunday afternoon. What can you give so your dog is a lot more comfortable? Well, here's some of my suggestions. First of all, aspirin. The dog aspirin dose, or ASA dose, is 325 milligrams for 40 pounds of body weight twice daily. If your dog is on another non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, such as Medicam, Rimbal, etc., you don't want to be giving it, or if he's on a corticosteroid, such as prednisone, then also don't give it. Valerian. This is a herbal tincture. It'll provide some sedation and pain relief. The valerian dose is a half a mil of a tincture per 20 pounds of body weight every four to six hours. You can also look at using some type of oral gel. I mean, this is a topical over-the-counter dental pain medications, and they're somewhat effective on our dogs. What you want to do is put a small layer, a small coating, 
just above the tooth on top of the gum line. I'm just loosely coating it. Arnica, this is a homeopathic. I also gave my dog Lewis some Arnica. And the dog Arnica dose is 130C capsule for 20 pounds of body weight. And in acute situations such as this, this can be repeated every one to two hours. Now, the last sort of natural form of pain relief that I want you to be thinking about is curcumin. So if you have the 95% curcuminoids, they're a great anti-inflammatory, also provide some natural pain control. Um, the dose of the curcuminoids is 100 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight twice daily. And I went ahead and also added this to Lewis's soft food. Um, he yelped when I tried to open his mouth, the poor guy, but he's able to sort of lick it up in the soft food. So those are five big things that you should be thinking about if your dog has oral pain. And as I said earlier, if you suspect it's a fractured tooth, you need to get him examined. But in the interim, at least give him some natural pain control. Let's get on to the second part of today's podcast, what you need to know about parvovirus. Canine parvovirus is a highly contagious virus and it can affect all dogs. But unvaccinated dogs and puppies younger than four months are most at risk. In fact, it is now 99% of disease of young unvaccinated dogs. In other words, it's not seen in dogs older than a year of age. The virus affects dogs' gastrointestinal tract and it's, and it's spread by direct dog-to-dog contact and contact with contaminated feces, which can be in the environment, the dog walk, even through other people, you know, such as being in a clinic, for instance. The virus can also contaminate kennel surfaces, food and water bowls, collars and leashes, and just the hands and clothing of people who have handled infected dogs. It's super resistant virus. It's resistant to heat, cold, humidity, and drying. It can survive in the environment for long, long periods of time. I'm no question now, if you're going down to your local dog walk, there's been some puppies down there, there's a good chance someone could take a swab of some of that feces, and they're actually going to find trace amounts of it. The virus is readily transmitted from place to place on the hair of the feet of dogs via contaminated cage, shoes, or other objects. And it's it just the point, it's, it's a virus that is all throughout our environment. It's called ubiquitous, and your dog will be exposed to it. So a little bit about the history of parvovirus. And it's thought that it was a variant of the feline distemper virus, and it first showed up in dogs in 1978, so not that long ago. In 1978, there was no dog in North America that had any sort of immunity against this virus. There was no resistance, and there was just a disastrous ep- epidemic. And you've talked, if you go ahead and talk to some older veterinarians who were around at the time, I mean, they'll they'll tell you. To make matters worse, there was after that there was a second mutation of this canine parvovirus that occurred in 1979, and it made it even seemingly, seemingly more aggressive. At the time, there was a vaccine, was a premium. And many veterinarians had to make do with this feline distemper virus vaccine. That was the closest related vaccine available when the manufacturer, they struggled just to keep up. We can't make enough parvovirus vaccines at the time. Fortunately, things have all changed now. What are some of the signs of parvovirus? Well, think about it as GIT, gastrointestinal. So you've got include lethargy, loss of appetite, stomach pain, and bloating. Generally, it could be a high fever or very low body temperature as dogs get progressively ill vomiting and severe, often bloody diarrhea. Persistent vomiting and diarrhea can cause rapid dehydration and damage to the intestines and immune system can result in septic shock. I mean, these dogs are really, really, really sick. There's often a really strong odor of the bloody, bloody diarrhea. I mean, if you've got a puppy showing any of these signs, obviously you need to be seeing your veterinarian as soon as possible. Most most deaths from parvovirus occur within 48 to 72 hours following the onset of clinical sign. How do we go about diagnosing and treating this disease? Well, first, it's often suspected based on your dog's history, physical exam, lab tests. A pretty simple fecal test that most clinics can do in clinic can confirm the diagnosis. 
And the big thing, generally, we're dealing with these unvaccinated or undervaccinated young puppies less than a year of age. No specific drug is available that's going to kill the virus in your dog. Treatment there is supportive. We're trying to support your dog's immune system, all those other body systems. Will they actually ultimately fight out that viral infection? The big thing is we're going to prevent them from getting dehydrated. We want to prevent some of the secondary things that can lead to septic shock. So treatment primarily consists of intensive care to combat dehydration, replacing electrolyte, protein and fluid losses, controlling vomiting and diarrhea, and preventing secondary infection. Sick dogs need to be kept warm, receive really good nursing care. When a pup develops parvovirus, treatment can be expensive, and unfortunately, still some dogs may die despite aggressive treatment. Fortunately, it looks like more than 90% of those dogs now survive. Early recognition and aggressive treatment are very important in successful outcomes. Proper treatment, survival rates can approach 90%. A little bit about prevention. First of all, you've got, this is this is one of only two dog vaccines that I advise. I advise vaccinating your dog against parvovirus and distempervirus. The two sort of core vaccines. Parvoviral infections become a disease almost exclusively of puppies and adolescent dogs. These dogs a year and under. The vaccine itself is very effective. And now only two doses at 8 and 12 weeks apart are needed to confer immunity to your pup. After a year of age, your dog is going to have adequate immunity. And in my opinion, will not need another parvovirus vaccine. Um, so that's a big thing. I mean, it, of all the different things, no question there's concerns around vaccines. Us giving our dogs far too many vaccines too often. But if there's two things, that, and if I were to get a pup, I'd do the exact same thing. I would give them a vaccine for parvovirus and for distempervirus at 8 weeks and 12 weeks. And your dog will get exposed to parvo. So of all those different things, if you have to, you know, you're, you're trying to filter in your mind, should I do this or not do this? Yes, you should vaccinate your dog against parvovirus. And just be aware of this disease. And even if, say, you've got an eight-week-old pup, don't take him to the dog walk yet. Wait until he's got at least that 12-week vaccine into him and a week after that. Do we know he's got some good protective immunity? Because any areas where there's lots of dogs in a small space, there's going to be a dog that has parvo, and that disease will be present. Now, the next, last part of today's podcast is about seizures in dogs. So what is a seizure? A seizure is defined as abnormal muscle activity as a result of uncontrolled messages from the brain. There's a sudden brief change in how your dog's brain is working. When the brain cells are not working properly, your dog has a physical change called a seizure. Dog seizures are classified as either grand mal seizures or localized. Grand mal seizures affect your dog's entire body. Generally, the legs are extended and paddling, and the head is rigid and extended. They may go through cycles of being stiff and relaxed. Some dogs may lose bowel or bladder control. And if the seizure occurs at night, this is all you may see in the morning. Localized seizures affect only certain areas of your dog's body. Typically, you may see their head shake or their jaw chatter. In the majority of cases, the cause of the seizure is unknown. It is then called epilepsy. Some of the other possible causes include cancer, such as a brain tumor, infections, brain trauma, poisoning, lead poisoning, low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, hypothyroidism. Your veterinarian can just discuss a variety of diagnostic tests such as blood work, x-rays, CT scan, MRI, spinal fluid tap. The age at which the seizure starts will generally give you a fairly good idea as to the underlying cause. For pets less than a year old, most are caused by brain infections such as meningitis. Some dogs though will develop epilepsy as puppies. For pets between the ages of one to five, the most common diagnosis and seizure causes epilepsy. If your pet has his first seizure over the age of five, then the most common cause is a brain tumor, brain cancer. Emergency care. 
The most important thing to do if your dog is experiencing a seizure is to protect your dog from self-injury. Be patient, don't panic, and use the following tips to provide proper care. Step one, just don't place your fingers or any object in your dog's mouth. Step two, you know, pull your dog away from walls, furniture. You don't want to be banging his head. In other words, not hurting himself. If you can, then wrap your dog in a blanket, helping him protect him from injury. Step four, when the seizure is stopped, contact your veterinarian for further instruction. And if the seizure does not stop within 10 minutes, your dog comes out of the seizure and goes right back into another one, then you need to transport your dog to the veterinarian immediately. I want to discuss a little bit of some of the natural remedies. First, there are reports that show a link between diet and seizures in dogs. One human study showed a marked reduction in seizure activity with patients on the Atkins diet. Every seizuring pet should at least try a commercial hypoallergenic diet for 12 weeks. Most alternative practitioners are strongly advising a holistic diet, naturally preserved, free of grains and primary animal protein. There's one acupressure point that can be particularly helpful. It's called the GB26 point. It, it probably is the most important one, and, and, it can see, and in some cases will actually help stop a seizure while it's happening in your dog. So this area is where the nose meets the upper lip, immediately below the nostrils. This is also a key one for CPR as it can trigger your pet to breathe and also be effective for seizures. So what you want to do is be putting your index finger on that area, indenting the skin in just enough to cause an indent, holding it for at least 60 seconds during a seizure. Essential fatty acids. They may potentially decrease brain inflammation. Here you want to have high doses and therapeutic levels of the FAs. So I'm looking at doses being 1,000 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight twice daily. That would, that would equate to one tablespoon of flax oil for 40 pounds of body weight. There are two homeopathic remedies that have been reported to be helpful by some holistic practitioners. Belladonna can be given twice daily in addition to the conventional medication. The dose being one 30C tablet for 30 pounds twice daily. Aconite is useful for sudden conditions such as during a seizure. Dosing it at 130C tablet for 20 pounds of body weight every 15 minutes. Choline, it's used for certain human nerve disorders. It helps make a nerve chemical called acetylcholine. A specific choline product that can help seizures in dogs is called colidin. It can be given with a conventional medication at a dose of one to two pills daily for a small dog and two to four pills given daily for a large bog. Cannabidiol, or CBDs. A recent study by Colorado State University found that those with an opinion, 92% of these clients reported that this hemp product, CBD, helped relieve dog seizures or convulsions to a moderate to substantial amount. And so these are clients that are, that are one, A, a certain percent were actually able to come off uh, the conventional seizure medications such as potassium bromide or phenobarbital. Large, large percent are able to reduce the, the doses or the amounts they're giving of those dogs. So they get, had to give far less phenobarbital, low levels of sodium bromide, which is a big, big point. So obviously if your dog is, has some form of seizure, you need to be seeing your veterinarian, you're going to get them worked up appropriately. But then, but then after that, and in, it's most likely epilepsy for most of you people are listening today. You probably have an epileptic dog. There's only two real, you know, normal or conventional medications. One is phenobarbital. One is potassium bromide. They both have a whole host of potential side effects, especially given long term. Phenobarb is the most common one that's prescribed and induces liver enzymes, so it's directly affecting your dog's liver, and over time it become less effective. The doses need to go up. So really look at some of these conventional options. If you've ever thought of something like CBD, 100% think about it. If I had a dog, if I'm to have a pup now and he was di- diagnosed with epilepsy, that'd be the first alternative option I would look to. Well, thank you guys for listening to today's podcast. It's Dr. Jones again. 
I wanted to leave you with uh, sort of lessons I learned from my dog. One, never stop playing, wag more and bark less, be loyal and faithful, be quick to forgive and love unconditionally. And there's a whole bunch of things we can learn from our pets. And, you know, I'm pretty thankful that I have them and being in the position to talk about them on a pretty regular basis. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you got some good information out of today's podcast. As I said earlier, if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email. That's at podcastveterinarysecrets.com or post a comment on my blog where I'm posting, putting all the podcasts and that's either at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash blog or just go ahead and Google me, Dr. Andrew Jones blog or Dr. Andrew Jones YouTube. Once again, thanks for listening. I look forward to talking to you guys again next week. This is Dr. Jones.